Hello everyone, I'm Daniel Bryant and I'd like to welcome you to the Ambassador Living on the Edge podcast, the show that focuses on all things related to cloud native platforms, creating effective developer workflows and building modern APIs. Today I'm joined by Michael Hasenblast, a product developer advocate in the AWS Container Service team. I've chatted to Michael in the community for many years now, from days when we were both working on Apache Mesos powered systems, all the way through to us now working on Kubernetes and the cloud world. Today, I was keen to pick Michael's brains around the topics of customer focus, that's internal customers as well as end users. Also, I was keen to understand his thoughts around building pads like platforms on Kubernetes and the use of RBAC and Open Policy Agent to implement Kubernetes access control. If you like what you hear today, I definitely encourage you to pop over to our website, that's www.getambassador.io, where we have a range of articles, white papers, and videos that provide more information for engineers working in the Kubernetes and cloud space. You can also find links there to our latest releases, such as the Ambassador Edge stack, our open source Ambassador API Gateway, and also our CNCF hosted telepresence communities tool too. Hello, Michael, and welcome to the podcast. Hello there. Thanks for having me, Denny. Could you briefly introduce yourself, please, and share a recent career highlight? All right, I'll do that. So my name is Michael, and I'm a product developer advocate uh, at Emerson. I'm working in the AWS service team for containers, so all kinds of container services there, ECS, EKS, ECR, AppMesh. And yeah, well, there are so many highlights. (laughs) It's really hard to pick one, but I think the... The highlight in the sense of that the community is making really great progress towards being online and, and you know, all the events and all the, the meetings and so on are, are moving uh, online. And I hope that this kind of stays like that, to be honest, <laughs> <laughs> from my perspective. Awesome stuff. So I've got to ask the obligatory question with every ambassador podcast we do, Michael. Could you share with us your best developer experience or maybe the key components you think make a good developer experience and sort of from the idea stage to the coding to the testing to the deploying releasing observing what do you think is the most important thing perhaps folks aren't talking about today right this is an example that believe it or not is already more than 20 years old and uh, I picked it not because you know I, I don't want to talk about more recent things but it really stuck with me and and kind of like I'm still looking for this kind of experience. <laughs> Back then it was called Silverstream and I think it was bought by by NetApp. It was essentially if you remember at the time when we started building web apps and it was this kind of should it be written in JavaScript or in Java like a Java applet? Mm-hmm. And so what they did there was really end to end very nicely integrated to so essentially what highlight or, or draw your your UI, you know, your forms and whatever. And then you would also model your generation database there, would connect these fields, and then would be able to say deploy it as a JavaScript, you know, based application or as a Java application or Java applet. And it has all these elements that, you know, it's kind of like full stack without you know claiming <laughs> to be full stack. You had full control over how to actually deploy it. So do you want to you know, in this way or that way, you don't have to mm-hmm. upfront choose. And you could do everything in terms of testing and so on. You could like stage it and so, like have a preview, how it would, would work, so iterate on that. And I think the, the main point there was that it would allow you to focus on the business logic rather than mm-hmm. you know, deep diving into JavaScript or Asian databases or this or that. It was really this, this 
end-to-end -end integrated system that uh, allowed me to very, very quickly iterate and, and be very, very productive and, and getting up uh, applications. And I mean, again, think of it, it was like 20 years in the past, mm. right? and then 1999 or even earlier. And, and this is something where even nowadays, uh, you know, we have all these advances in, in terms of, you know, libraries and, and, and whatnot. But still, this kind of like integrated end-to-end -end, uh, mm. development environment that allows you to quickly iterate. I haven't seen that. Maybe I'm, I'm missing stuff because I'm so much focused on on the infrastructure bits that I, I don't see the, the, all these these beautiful things that happen on, on top of it. But I, I'm, I was really impressed. I like that. I've noticed in my career, there's been a fragmentation, effectively. Yeah. We've all gone hyper-specialized. The, the full stack stuff you mentioned is still super popular, but the actual components of how we deliver software has become specialized. Infrastructure here, right. front-end here, back-end here for some reason. Kind of yeah. weird, right? Yeah. Right, right. How important do you think it is for developers to understand the business context they're working in? And my pitch here really is there's actually quite a lot to learn these days for full stack. Yeah, there's business mm. awareness, there's coding, and then there's all infrastructure stuff, which you and I worked on for quite some time now. How important do you think like it is for folks to balance up all their knowledge, you know, business, dev, and infrastructure? If you as a developer understand business as your customer and you want to make your customer happy, then it's clear your drive is really give business something that works rapidly, that uh, fulfills their requirements, etc. So the more I understand, not necessarily the business itself, but the business needs, and I can translate those to, to certain features or whatever, the better I can actually serve my customers, the, the more happy my customers are. And this is where if we look at, it doesn't matter if it's a conference or a white paper or whatever, where we are celebrating and, you know, I'm, I'm in awe of that, like engineering excellence and, and you know, mm. how nifty we came up with a protocol or how scalable something is. And so, and that is all super important, right? I mean, mm -mm. absolutely, it has to scale, it has to be secure, it has to be performant, etc. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't work, if it doesn't fulfill the needs of business, then what good is it, right? <laughs> if, mm -hmm. if I yeah. can scale a trivial reports or whatever, yeah, if if it's, it's very trivial to scale something that doesn't do anything, <laughs> can you report that, you know, I've scaled it up to 50,000, 100,000 instances. That's true. But, you know, how many customers have you actually served? How, how much business did you actually support with that? And that is where business metrics, and that, that's, for, for example, a, a concrete thing. If you think about monitoring or whatever, right, and you come up with metrics, like, let's say, the CPU utilization of a box, right? Let's say mm -hmm. 80%. What does it really tell you? Versus mm -hmm. a business metrics, it says, well, in this application, might be a distributed application, we have done 50,000 transactions per second, right? Mm -hmm. Not only is this high-level business-oriented metric much more meaningful, it has a direct impact. It tells you, well, <laughs> you can attach a dollar value or whatever value yeah. to it. You can say, how much was my three lines of code that I added there or very often removed there? How much mm -hmm. did that impact? the actual you know, mm. revenue or, or, or bottom line, right? How much easier it is to talk about actual revenue or whatever, like customers or whatever you, you however you want to measure it in terms of business metrics, then focusing on, on that kind of stuff rather than, yes, we have shaved off five milliseconds there. Again, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's not important to be fast and performant or whatever, but 
put it in the context of how does that impact your customer, how much more mm-hmm. um, you know happy they are or how much faster they can do things or whatever. That is my main ask, I guess, or my main vision there. Yeah. Yeah, well, so I think the customer obsession I've seen, the customer focus with Amazon mm. always comes through and I respect that a lot and it just, it makes sense, right? Just to make sure, customer not necessarily only means the end customer, right? If mm. I'm working with someone, you know, my colleagues, right? They can be my customers, right? It's, it's really all about understanding that someone else is not just a colleague or whatever like they are my customers right and that's the, the kind of mindset yeah i think a lot of it's about empathy as well isn't it like yes, sort of yes. realizing that you're not the customers even as us as developers we're not always developing stuff for us we have to bear in mind what other folks exactly. want yeah i like that a lot so going back to stuff that perhaps you and i did a bit more of now in terms of the infrastructure we've, we've set the context that the business problem and the customer is super super important but we love our tech yeah and i know you've got some great experience here so kind of keen to dive into that how important is it for the average developer do you think to become operationally aware i think for every developer no matter if you're you're more focusing front end or more back end more system related more application related um or if you own you know the, the full end to end stack there it is super important to be at least aware, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that you have to have hands-on experience. It's great if you get that opportunity, but don't you know worry if, if, if you don't yet. But at least being aware, because A, it's much, much easier, it's much smoother to work together if you, if again, comes back to empathy, comes back to being aware of what is going on on the other side. And, and mm. unfortunately, it's still the case, I think. I don't have hard data to back it up, but I, I remember a really good talk. It was someone who made the point that we are incentivizing and focusing on creating new stuff, which is what developers do, right? You hmm. crunch out new features and whatever, and not necessarily keeping stuff running, right? And that is what mm. typically the, the ops role is, is about. Whereas... It really, if, if if you write something and that's not deployed and it's not running, it doesn't actually do anything good, right? On on its own, yeah. writing a new feature, or whatever, is is really no good. And and I think that's in terms of incentives that's that's there. If if you align these incentives, and and I think ops roles already did that way more than dev roles in terms of mm. you know ops roles picking up program languages, understanding what developers are doing, and and so on, and and developers. Nowadays, with things like Kubernetes, for example, which um, I think contributed a lot to this kind of democratization and getting operational contexts and, and concepts out there in the first place, making pretty much everyone aware of what is a load balancer, what is a deployment. I mean, if you yeah, would have yeah. asked 20 years ago, your average developer, what is a deployment? I'm not even sure if they would have heard about it. Nowadays, they have at least probably come across a Kubernetes deployment. They might not know the details, but they know mm. the concept, right? And I think yeah. uh, this, all, all this education and being aware of what these concepts are in the long run, just make make the whole thing much better, much smoother, right? It's like this whole DevOps idea based on mutual respect, mutual empathy, and and being aware of, of what the other other role are, are doing and 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 also helping out with that preparing for that right if you think about mm-hmm. if i as a developer are aware of what uh, metrics do then i can perfectly you know relate to that i can instrument my code and i can make it much much easier to you know 
actually improve the, the operational experience there versus my focus is on handing over a war file and you know once that's yeah. there i'm i'm done right that's that's my job right and in certain environments if you think about uh, serverless uh, functions as service environments like like lambda mm. i mean there is not much infrastructure there after all right so who mm. is who is going to be on call very likely more on the developer side right you might have dedicated people but given that there is no infrastructure like who's who's going to wear the picture right so <laughs> maybe <laughs> over time this operational knowledge or or awareness or whatever is is more and more important for developers after all some great thinking points there michael diving in a little bit to the underlying platform you mentioned there like lambda but if we sort of bring it up a, a step to sort of like modern paths you can even argue that lambda and so forth you know is a component of a modern pass what do you think the workflow looks like for a modern pass should it be just that simple you know heroku style git push master and it deploys or do you think there's more steps needed for the variety of workloads we have i I don't think that there is the, the idle pass or, or the one that rules it all. Mm. We have seen many, many different uh, shapes and forms successful. Uh, OpenShift has its success. Uh, Cloud Foundry has its success. Lambda and other, other Heroku, et cetera. And, and all of them brought something to the table. I personally think that in the context of, of, of Kunitis, at least, supporting GitOps is, is a really great way to making sure that you have a very clear, explicit, declarative way of what should be there, having everything recorded, having a review cycle there, and then doing the actual deployment automated through, through an agent that listens to a repo. But in terms of pass, what I've seen as, as a pattern now for, for many you know, different areas is that you very often have an internal team that uses something mm -hmm. like Kubernetes, for example, as a basis, and they build it might be not a full-blown pass, but some kind of middleware that kind of shields the developers to a certain extent from you know raw Kubernetes <laughs> uh, yeah, resources yeah. like you know pods and deployments and services, whatever. But they might introduce things like the, the application concept and then applications mm -hmm. then internally defined as whatever uh, makes sense in this context. On, on the one hand, it might have to do with with portability across different uh, Kubernetes on premises and in the cloud, but also to, to to make developers more more productive there. So I've seen this this pattern. This what I, very often it's not called a pass, but I would argue it is pass-like functionality middleware that is then written. It's very often a very thin layer. Could be a bunch of bash scripts. Could be something else. But yeah, yeah. something that shields the the powerful but but very you know uh, expressive lower level uh, infrastructure like like when it is away from the, the end developers. Yeah, I don't think we've found that perfect abstraction yet, have we? I'm with you. The, the, the deployments, the services in Kubernetes totally level up the game. But I think for some developers that just want to write code, it's still a bit too much detail, all this YAML sometimes. Yeah, right? yeah absolutely. absolutely. Tricky one. But I, I like your pitch about the middleware layer because I've built my fair share of that. You and I go back from the Mesos days. We've, we've seen that for quite some years, yeah? yeah? yeah. Like, to be, to be yeah. fair. Yeah. One of the things I think a lot of folks struggle with is the security around this space. And I see you do some interesting talks like from the yeah. WeWorks team, Open Policy Agent, a bunch of things around this. Could you talk to some of the security challenges around this kind of middleware layer of the, of the, the PaaS-like experience? Right, right, right. So on the one hand, you have what 
usually is lumped up under supply chain management. So essentially the idea that for every artifact, in the simplest case, let's say a container running in a container orchestration system like Kubernetes, you're able to exactly say, you know, who produced that artifact, who created that image, who, for example, if you have a GitHub setup, who merged that pull request that actually led to this deployment that runs that container in a pod. So at any point in time, you have full visibility and, and you know, can trace back who uh, created what artifact and, and put it into production, for example. And that also, you know, if you have some abnormality going on there, something an anomaly like, I don't know, uh, you might be DDoS or you have a hacker in there or whatever, you can say, uh, and that actually is a great foundation for from you know machine learning that can say like, well, usually, you know, in this cluster, in this namespace, whatever, this is the usual pattern. And now I see something different, you know, maybe we should alert somebody or whatever. So automation is definitely a, a big part of that. And a lot of things that I've been uh, dealing with and, and seeing is compliancy. And very often people think of, you know, financial institutions having to stick to certain regulations. There are many, many of them, especially in Europe. But uh, that's not the only uh, case. That's a, an important uh, one, but it's not the only one. It's, you know, you have examples of Metal, for example, doing doing the, the Kubernetes API deprecation, using OPER for that, essentially saying you know, oh, what, yeah, yeah. what API has been deprecated where. Mm. There are so many, if you think about it, uh, that you can take and make explicit and with that use use uh, opas uh, rego to, to express it mm. uh, for example think of, of a, a very simple setup in, in in gitops where you say a deployment has to have certain labels and has to you know confirm to or have, there must be in, in the helm chart there must be certain things present or whatever and now you can write a a bot in, in you know looking at, at the repo that looks at the pull request and fed with or, or equipped with these OPA um, rules can actually kind of review this pull request mm. uh, before a human even looks at it and say, well, it does not conform to whatever business or, or whatever other compliancy uh, regulations there are and protect it or maybe even automatically merge it if, if, all, uh, if all rules have been followed, right? So think of it that all the, the if this and this is missing or if this, that and that is, is the case, Either which is currently hard coded in your code, or which is you know usually done by a human, can be externalized and represented as OPA uh, rules. And then it's just a matter of where in the process do you you know mm. uh, make it available or, or apply these, enforce these rules very early on in the stage, like more on the build side of things, or uh, later on. And and very often you know uh, things that that happen in, in a running cluster also have to be you know checked. I mean. Mm. It's nice if you can prove that, you know, your image has been uh, scanned and signed off by the right person, everything, but there might be something happening while it is running in the cluster. So you, you still need to keep an eye on that and you might have a different set of rule uh, for, for that case as well. Mm, there's something I've bumped into. Like with Ambassador, we get folks in the OSS Slack asking us, do you support OPA? We've also mm -hmm. seen it from the Istio perspective in the right. service mesh layer. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you might bump into it with app mesh and so yes. forth. I, I do like the runtime pitch with OPA. You know, we've kind of got authentication sorted, but authorization, particularly the service to service level, is not really there yet. Have you bumped into any of the uses of OPA in that space? So I, I'm a big fan of, of Arbeck in, in Kubernetes myself. I run arbeck.dev advocacy website that 
you know collects are back nice. good practices and, and material and, and recipes etc but i also see the limitations of rbec and that is that it cannot represent all the necessary things right for example i want to be able to say in this group someone has access to this namespace during the office hours from this region, mm. right? And you yep. simply cannot say that in, in, in RBAC. Or also after the fact, once once something has happened, could be after an incident or, or whatever, there's definitely interest to, to apply that. I, I'm not sure to what extent these kind of policies would be done in, co in core communities. PSPs, pod security policies, might be an area mm. where community is open to potentially use OPA for that. But to me, the point is OPA is a very, very generic framework, right? Maybe currently the most popular use case around uh, Gatekeeper, yeah, which yeah. works you know, very, very closely tightly integrated with communities. But there are other things than communities out there. There are other concerns. What I like most about OPA is that it's it's a generic framework. It's just like a uh, programming language. You know, it, it's it doesn't force you to do exactly this one thing. You can express any kind of constraints or policies or whatever with it. And then the question is really just where and how do you enforce it in which stage and and um, do you you know automate something? Do you immediately shut down something or do you alert a human and the human then has to take some kind of action based on, on that outcome. You mentioned a couple of times there about open standards, the open mm -hmm. policy agent, for example. Yeah. How important do you think organizations like the CNCF, the Cloud Native Computing Foundation and the CDF, the Continuous Delivery Foundation? Yeah. Uh, I know Amazon's heavily involved in open source too. How important do you think these open standards, open frameworks are for driving the community forward? Absolutely. I think that's that's super important. And I, I've noticed that like way earlier, going back 2004, 5, 6, when I started being part of W3C and ITF, then Apache Software Foundation. And it was always the same idea, right? If you do have an open standard, nowadays, like these open standards seem to be like almost the defaults, right? Like yeah. everyone goes like, oh yeah, sure. That's, that's, that makes sense. But that was not always the case, right? You you would have for, for a very long time formats, specifications, whatever, that were dominated and owned by, by a certain entity or a certain company. And, and I think that these open standards really, really are super helpful because now as a vendor, you can you know differentiate by you know having a faster or better or whatever <laughs> implementation, but there is interoperability there, right? You do have, if everyone sticks with, with that standard, a core interoperability, making it easier for people to uh, swap out things, and and that's uh, that's always a good thing, right? If you if you can compete on being being you know more secure or feature rich or whatever, but you do have these guarantees to a certain extent to to have interoperability and being able to move around stuff. Mm, very nice, very nice. No, I totally like the the interoperability pitch. It makes a lot mm -hmm. of sense. Based on your experience, have you got any advice for how folks should pick some of these core components? We've talked about, say, building a platform, building a PaaS, building a good developer experience. Some There are some advantages to picking open things. There's some advantages to going sort of maybe more closed for certain areas. Have you got any advice on to where people should invest their time and also probably invest their money for certain parts of this experience? My high-level advice is always the same, and that is look at what makes you productive, right? If you are faster and better off with a let's say 
virtual machine and that is all you need and that is all you care about, why not, right? You can uh, do many, many of the things on a single virtual machine. Uh, you don't need to go into containers. You don't need to go into functions. Look at what makes you productive and, and what you're coming back again to the, the initial discussion with, with businesses, right? And business metrics, what makes you faster and, and, and more productive there. And, and, and I don't think that it's like an, an all or nothing. Like it's like, mm-hmm. um, hey, you know, if you want to use containers, then you have to, you know, go all in and you have to use service measures and you have to use mm. X, Y, Z, everything, right? Pick what makes sense for you. Pick what, what helps you delivering things faster, making your, your customers happy and, and not necessarily what, you know, where the hype is because the hype, you know, every couple of months there is a new <laughs> hype cycle somewhere and something <laughs> peaks. And if you're chasing that, A, you will always be behind because by definition, you're chasing something. And uh, B, unless it was developed in your organization or, or you know, under your control, you don't own it, right? You're uh, you know, a visitor there, you're a customer there, and you can adapt it. You can wonder how you can best use it in your environment, but you don't control it. You don't necessarily dictate certain uh, features or whatever in, in that environment. So I would always focus on what makes the team or me, if I'm an individual, uh, most productive and then gets gets most most out of it. Yeah, sound advice, Michael. That's a, that's a voice of experience there, I can definitely <laughs> tell. So wrapping up, Michael, the final couple of questions. What do you think the developer experience is going to look like over the next five years, say? We're definitely seeing the rise of Lambda and platforms sort of function as a service. Kubernetes might sort of go into the platform a bit more, I've heard a bunch of folks say. What do you think we'll all be doing in five years' time when we're building software? So there are uh, certain good practices or patterns that if you look through, is pretty much more or less I wouldn't say a standard, but it's kind of like expectations. If you think about playgrounds, right? Pretty much all languages or environment nowadays, you, you have a playground, right? Opa, mm. for example, has a great playground. Mm. You can just try out something very, very quickly, get an idea. You're not forced to believe what a vendor says and, and whatever. You can just try it out yourself. You can very, very quickly form an opinion and get an idea. Is that thing a fit? It doesn't necessarily answer certain questions in terms of scalability and how well does it integrate or whatever. But to give folks a, a, a first taste, it's like if I go there and it's like, oh, that that doesn't really feel right. That doesn't feel mm-hmm. like like the the way how, how you know I, I plan to use things. Versus, oh yeah, okay, it's kind of like a litmus test, right? It's like okay, I I can imagine working with that. Okay, now I need to invest more. So this kind of like playgrounds or whatever you want to call them to quickly get a get a feeling for for a certain language or environment or whatever it is. The other thing that I believe we will see more and more is that getting in terms of abstractions higher and higher. So this what we call in, in AWS this undifferentiated heavy lifting in terms of looking after a single VM or a even a single cluster that goes away and, and you're focusing on higher level things so more on the business logic and also i think you already see that use machine learning building blocks mm, yeah. essentially part of rather than doing it from scratch just using it i, I recently put together a, uh, a serverless uh, demo called nodeless that essentially uses one part there to yeah, uh, do some some recognition of, of uh, scribbles or, or words or whatever. And if I would compare that with, I would 
do that myself really rather than using an API. I would need to pick, be able to pick the right algorithm or the, the right set of, of algorithms. I would effectively either be a, need to be a data scientist myself or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. In this case, I'm just using the API. So I don't really see, not within five years, that ML will simply do, do everything for us, right? You mm-hmm. just you give it some data and it will pop out some end-to-end application. Mm-hmm. But kind of like like Lego bricks, right? We just take mm. parts and and use where and, and where it makes sense and where where it's helping us a lot to build our applications. So this kind of like higher levels of abstractions, not dealing with machines, but focusing on the business logic, plus this pulling in the machine learning APIs where where it makes sense. Yeah, and and, and again, gives us result, results faster and more reliable. I like that a lot, Michael. Yeah, great stuff. Well, it's been awesome talking today. If folks want to follow your work a bit more closely, yep. where, where's best? The Twitter, LinkedIn, you mentioned a few websites there as well? Yes, Twitter is definitely usually the, the most uh, up-to-date place. LinkedIn as well. I hang out on Slack uh, fairly often. Community CNCF, a couple of places. I do have a, a website which maybe gets updated two or three times <laughs> a year. So it's not, it, it gives you an idea, but not, not necessarily the most recent one. So yeah, Twitter is probably the best. Great stuff. Well, thanks for your time, Sam, Michael. Really enjoyed right. the conversation. Thanks a lot for having me, Daniel.